What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with top performers, athletes, researchers, scientists, and more on a mission to unlock human performance. That's right. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop. And this week's episode, Whoop VP of Performance Science, Principal Scientist Kristen Holmes, is joined by Dr. Guy Winch. The licensed psychologist and author is a relationship and emotional health expert with one of the most highly regarded TED Talks in the business. Kristen and Dr. Guy will discuss how Guy began researching emotional health, the approach and skills needed to improve emotional health. For example, simply expressing gratitude once a day can be a major driver. How to deal with rumination, the connection of breath work and stress to emotional health. They touch on how important the breath and heart are to signal relaxation to the brain. This is fascinating. Getting space to grieve properly. Redeveloping self-esteem after a failure or breakup. Have to work to fill the holes in your identity that have been created by a loss or breakup. That's a key theme. Ways to have a good work-life balance. They touched on the pros and cons of working from home and how the pandemic has opened people's eyes to the importance of connection. A reminder, if you're new to Whoop, use the code WILL, W-I-L-L, when you're checking out. Get a $60 credit on Whoop Accessories. That is join.whoop.com. If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us, podcast.whoop.com. Call us, 508-443-4952. Here are Kristen Holmes and Dr. Guy Winch. Dr. Guy Winch is a licensed psychologist, author, and keynote speaker whose books have been translated into 30 languages. His first TED Talk, Why We All Need to Practice Emotional First Aid, has been viewed over 13 million times and is rated as the fifth most inspiring talk of all time on TED.com. Dr. Winch's work has been featured in outlets such as the Boston Globe, NPR, The Atlantic, and Business Insider. Dr. Guy received his PhD in clinical psychology from New York University, did postdoctoral work at NYU Medical Center, and opened a full-time private practice. So WHOOP is not just a wearable for athletes uh, or those looking to improve their performance. It is a comprehensive tool that helps people evaluate how various behaviors, habits, and patterns in their life can manifest both physiologically and psychologically. But honestly, I, I feel like what gets a lot of attention is the training behavior side and how we recover from training. But I think what is really missing from the conversation is the mental and emotional side and how that moves around our physical health. Um, Dr. Guy Wench, so, so happy to have you here to kind of discuss and go deep on all things emotional health. Uh, we really appreciate uh, you, you being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd love to start off by just uh, talking a little bit about your history. Uh, what got you excited and uh you know, really going down the path of, of the science behind emotional health. So I was always interested in psychology. And when I got my PhD during that training, it became very clear to me that I'm actually not that interested in psychopathology. In other words, severe schizophrenia or bipolar or, you know, very severe psychopathology interested me less. What interested me more was everything that happened before a diagnostic category. So to be classified as having, it's a major depression, you have to have this many criteria out of this many. But if you're missing one of those criteria, you're not officially depressed, but boy, are you depressed. And it always seemed to me that the preventative side of things, everyone who's suffering before they get officially, and if they ever do get officially diagnosed, all the regular slings and arrows of regular life, we don't really address things like loneliness or heartbreak or rejection or stress, even rumination. We, you know, that's not something that gets a diagnostic category that insurance reimburses on. And to me, it was much more compelling. How do we help people avoid getting mentally ill? How do we help people live a much more thriving life? And I consider that emotional health with a line to mental health coming at the diagnostic point. So I was always interested in emotional health. And then when I graduated and started my practice, I kept into the habit of, it was a PhD, it's a research degree, and I kept the habit of looking at the research. And there was a lot of research about emotional health, things that are not about the, the mental health aspect of things. And I started taking that research 
and seeing if I could translate it into tools or interventions that I could offer my patients. And then I would see which resonated, which worked. And I slowly began to acquire this toolkit of interventions, of tools, techniques, tricks, mind hacks to really boost our emotional health. And, you know, over the decades, the, the research has really mushroomed in so many different ways. But that's how I really started getting into the science of emotional health and what it can do and what it can teach us. So I guess it's safe to say that you see it really as you know, uh, an opportunity to build skills. Um, you know, what would you say are, uh, you know, if you were to kind of a laundry list of, of, of skills that help buoy emotional health, what would be a few that you would want to highlight? So I'm going to mention a few, but before I do, I want to mention the approach. And you're talking about physiological, you know, like athletes, you're talking about athletes, you're talking about training. Well, when you're trying to push yourself to achieve certain physiological milestones in running and whatever the, the sport is, the idea that you would be able to do that without training is ridiculous. Of course, you have to train. And to the extent that your goals are far from where you are presently, you have to train quite a bit. That should be the approach to emotional health. It's not a part-time thing. It's something that we need to be aware of and we need to be mindful of and we need to practice every single day because life happens every single day. So if we want to be healthier emotionally, that's something we have to be aware of. A few of the things that I practice every day, and I recommend everyone does, for example, and these are all evidence-based scientifically, so gratitude is an amazing thing because we evolved to look out for danger. There wasn't an evolutionary advantage to being happy. You can pass along your genes whether you're happy or not. There was to scouting the horizon for dangers. And so we're much more biased in that direction. We will pay attention to the negative much more than to the positive. We will note what's lacking in our lives much more easily than we will what we have. And so gratitude exercises are a way of balancing that aspect of things a bit by on a daily basis, noting the things for which we're grateful. And the best way to do that is in narrative form. It's not just about sitting down and going, well, I'm, I'm glad it's sunny. All right, you're glad it's sunny, but are you not grateful for the sun because the sun will rise or not, not based on your gratitude. You can be grateful it's a sunny day because for you that is associated with well-being and the outside outdoor season beginning and you like the feel of, of the sun on your skin. And so you can craft a little bit of a story. It doesn't have to be a long one. But the best way to practice gratitude is jot down a paragraph a day about something you're grateful for and why and do it in a little bit of a story of why that matters to you. That little exercise, it takes five minutes, has such profound effects on our optimism, on our happiness, on our truly emotional health, on our, and our physiological health, because they're obviously connected, as, which we'll get to. Um, so gratitude is one thing that I, I, I practice every day, and I highly recommend that people do. And is there a difference between uh, what's happening kind of in the brain when you're receiving gratitude versus kind of giving gratitude? So I, I can't quite speak to that. I, I don't do functional MRI studies. I, mm, I read okay. them. And, and the way they are done, actually I was having a conversation with somebody who does that um, research, because the way that's typically done is you'll have somebody, you know, lie in the functional MRI and, and, and think of something they're grateful for. It doesn't necessarily get prompted to be done in narrative form. The form that I suggest. And, and if you want to get the most bang out of your buck, and this is not something you can do every day, but for once in a while, if you want a real lift for mood and for everything, then think about someone who was really meaningful, influential, helpful, did something that really made a difference to you over your life, in your life at some point. It can be 30 years ago. It can be they, you know, they, something small. They had no idea it was having that impact, but you were having that kind of day with that small thing. And write them a letter telling them um, what the context was for you, what they did, whether they remember that or not, and the impact that had on you. That evokes really powerful gratitude because you're thinking about it in the context of your life and in the context of what it did. And it's often people who, and I've done that a number of times already, and many of the times people like not even quite sure they remember what I'm talking about but it's even more impactful for them because then they realize, like, oh, I did this small thing. I had no idea 
it had that significant an impact. So I hope they study those kinds of things in the functional MRI because doing reading or writing a letter like that while you're lying there, that will, I think, activate perhaps other areas of the brain that, that the regular one does not. So, but this is still something that we're, you know, obviously researching and, and trying yeah. to understand fully how that works. So interesting. Okay. So gratitude. Excellent. What are, is there, uh, what would you say is the next, uh, the next skill that you would recommend for emotional okay, health? Okay, so b because it's emotional health and mm -hmm. there's as many, if not more, don't do's as there are do's. And so because, like I said, our tendency, we evolved for certain purposes that were not quite suited for modern day life. And so this tendency to scan the horizon for danger can turn into anxiety. And the concern about whether your social standing is um, okay in the tribe um, when we were hunter-gatherers was super important because if you were going to be ostracized, then you're going to die. You're not going to survive alone. So it was super important to know that you were well-positioned and not in any kind of danger in the tribe. Um, it's not a life-or-death situation today if we have a falling out with a friend. But that legacy of the importance will cause us to ruminate ad nauseum to sit and spend five hours going through one version of a fantasy argument or a fantasy telling off that you're never going to have to your boss or to whoever. And the impulse to do that is incredibly powerful. It's a rabbit hole people spend a lot of time in. And when they're in that rabbit hole, by the way, all they're doing is they're marinating in stress and in cortisol and doing major damage for their body, depressing themselves, stressing themselves. Again, for a conversation, they even will tell you in a moment they will never have. So we have a lot of tendencies that are very unhealthy. And so a lot of what I practice is catching those and stopping them and not indulging them despite how compelling that might feel to do. Is it safe to say that that is kind of our default is to ruminate? It, not everyone's. No, it's a personal thing. Some of us have a much bigger tendency towards doing that than others. Some people are remarkable at um, shrugging things off, at compartmentalizing, at, you know, reframing things. So ah, I'm not bothered by it. Um, they're not the majority, but, but there are many, uh, you know, who, who do yeah. that. And, you know, and it's all some kind of bell curve where distribution where some people do it a lot at the ends and very little at the other ends. And most of us do somewhat in the middle. And, but um, it's very strong tendency. And the more uh, stressed we feel, the more likely we are to do it, the more upset we feel, the more depressed we feel, the more anxious we feel, all of those things uh, feed the tendency to ruminate. And, and, and just to, to, to clarify something for you know, the, the viewers and listeners, um, it is useful to self-reflect on our experiences, that's something we do by default to gain meaning, to gain understanding, to, to, to get our bearings, to get you know, action items out of it. It's natural to do that. There are healthy and unhealthy ways to self-reflect. The unhealthy ways involve a form of rumination where you're really just spinning and having the same unproductive cycle of thoughts over and over again. You'll relive that argument that you had, or you'll, again, have the fantasy argument, or you'll really think of how unfair this is, and then you'll go through a greatest hits of all the times you were treated unfairly. Of course, you're feeling horrible as you're doing this. You know, the difference between physical and emotional health is like if you sprain uh, or break a leg, and you think back to the time you broke your leg, your leg's not going to hurt from the recollection. <laughs> you think back to a time you were incredibly aggravated, you will get aggravated, even if it's 30 years ago. So every time we marinate in those things, we are literally reliving those wounds, picking at scabs is what I call it. And, and it's really bad to do because it doesn't lead anywhere. We're not gaining insight. We're not figuring anything out. We're not getting new perspective. We're not finding the silver lining. We are just marinating in the bad. Sometimes we'll do it alone in our heads. Sometimes we'll call a friend and tell them about the horrible thing that happened. And then we'll call another friend and tell them about the horrible thing that happened. And we can call 10 friends and tell them the same story. And they're all going to say the same thing. The validation feels useful, but the ROI is terrible because you might feel validated for a bit, but that's going to last for two seconds. And meanwhile, you've just put yourself in a bad mood and you've painted a picture of the world as being really negative, which is going to impact your perceptions, your mood, your confidence, your self-esteem, and all kinds of other things. 
Would you say uh, folks are more vulnerable to rumination uh, and, and not being able to start the cycle when they're sleep deprived, under recovered? I would imagine that's the case, but would love to hear your your thoughts on just how some of the kind of physical, like physiological things can kind of manifest and heighten uh, some of those uh, responses to, you know, some of these natural tendencies that we all have. Yeah, when, when we are depleted um, energy-wise because we've overtrained, underslept, undernourished, whatever the thing is, um, we're depleted not just in physiological resources, but in mental resources as well. So all our thresholds will get lower. That threshold above which we get triggered for anger, or we start to ruminate, or we get upset, or we get anxious, all those thresholds come down. We are much more prone to do those things because you know our reserves have been taxed. So as a general rule, it's not true for everything all the time, but as a general rule, if you're feeling that you're physiologically depleted, unrecovered, unrested, it's gonna, that's how you're going to be in the mental side and the emotional side, certainly, as well. So you need to know that because then if you're going into a situation where that might not be the best time to have a really important talk with your partner, your wife or your husband, whatever it is, because you might not be in the best frame of mind for it, just like after you're recovering from a marathon, maybe not the best time to do a 10K the next day kind of thing. You know, um, so, so we have to be aware of where we are physiologically because that's going to impact where we are emotionally and vice versa. Amazing. Would you say, you know, kind of staying on rumination for a second just because I feel like it's such an important, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a, the feature of, of, of the human experience, right? And and But there's making sense of, of a scenario and then there's ruminating. So maybe just talk through how do you help a patient who is, you know, kind of going beyond just making sense and really kind of constantly ruminating? How do you get them off that track? You know, how do you get them into a, a healthier place? in terms of thinking right. about this this problem or so so actually let's let's look at an example of an athlete who um you know trained for a long time for a race an event competition and um or the olympics didn't and didn't well. make it yeah that'd be me yeah well, yeah? <laughs> yeah okay so that say that you know i'm so sorry for that but but no, say that that's all right um it's it's absolutely devastating and um, it's and because you train for such a long time, the window to succeed is so small, then the window passes, the wait is so long, you might not be in the same condition. It's often people really dedicate years and years and years for that one goal that then doesn't happen. It is extraordinarily natural to grieve that, to really be in a tailspin about that and to ruminate about, oh, if I had just done that different, if I had just done this different, if I had... If I were able to just, maybe if I could go back mentally, I know I kind of felt shaky in that corner, but if I could have just taken that corner again, and you can spend hours doing that and days and years and months, and you can thoroughly feel like, what's the point of trying if like you put so much into something and then it gets snatched away from you? I can go on and on and on, but you, you know, not to belabor the point, but, but yeah. you can go down those rabbit holes. Now, when something like that happens, there's a due diligence to be done for sure. It is highly useful to look at what you can learn from that experience, what you can learn from that failure, as it were. And what you can learn from it, you have to approach that with zero judgment. It is useful to say, for example, I should never have gone to that party two days before the race because even though I left early, it was a distraction, I shouldn't have done it. Legit, not legit, I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that? I'm a loser. You know, I'm never going to get it like that. Not useful because the message was shouldn't have gone to party. All the loser idiot stuff adds zero value and does a lot of damage. And it is our want to become very self-critical in such moments. Now, an adaptive way to think about those things is to do the due diligence, to give yourself time to grieve the loss when it's a big deal. But to then move on. In other words, you're in the mire. Don't get sucked into it waist high. Try and, you know, wade in, feel what the feelings are. Get informed by the emotions that are coming up for you. You'd be surprised because maybe you feel loss and devastation and embarrassment and all kinds of things, but maybe there's also a bit of relief. Maybe there's also a bit of 
not too bad because it was such a sacrifice for your personal life, for your uh, professional life, or or and you know maybe now this frees you up to do the. Th and um, emotions are complex, so figure out what the feelings are, get informed by them, but then you have to get yourself away from the rumination. So to do that, you have to um, one option to do that is to reframe, because the the urge to ruminate is about the urge to like scratch that wound. To reframe is to take the toxicity out of that poison, to take the barb, loosen the barb that's kind of lodged in your head that keeps you spinning. One way to reframe this kind of experience um, was that um, this is going to make me stronger because now I know what it's like to really dedicate myself, to really train, to really get there. This didn't work out for me because of A, B, and C. I learned what I needed to from that. Where else can I take I mean, maybe I'll just try again and figure out what I do differently. Or where else can I take this wisdom and apply it in other areas of my life that I can benefit from the lessons that I've learned? How can I turn this disappointment into fuel, into motivation, into drive? How can I use this moment in which the eyes are on me for not succeeding to um, strengthen my personal relationships to feel more connected to the people around me. People care about me. They're reaching out. It's an opportunity to actually feel the love of the people around me, to feel the support, which I don't ordinarily do because I'm too busy training. There's a lot of different ways. I'm just giving some examples and throwing out. But in every situation, you can look for a different perspective that's less toxic and less dramatic and has more pluses, more, you know, and, and doing that helps release the urge to ruminate as much. And ultimately, with rumination, if you just keep going back to it, what the research says is a two to three minute distraction will get you off that cycle. It's like um, craving for cigarettes for people who stop smoking. The craving is not consistent. It's a wave. Just you've got to ride that wave. So the same with the urge to ruminate. Um, and what, I, what the research says, two to three minutes of concentrating on something else. So reading a book is not going to do it. It's too passive. Um, my go-to is Wordle. It's good for oh, one rumination nice. day. Uh -huh. <laughs> so that's not so good. Um, but, you know, it can be anything that requires concentration, a memory task. Try and remember the names of the kids who sat around you in grade school, whatever, or the order of the songs in a playlist. That concentrating for two minutes is enough for that wave to pass and then go about your business and repeat the exercise if the rumination occurs. Breathing techniques, I feel like, are money for me because it's really hard to think about anything as you're breathing. You know, focusing on a, a specific kind of cadence. Because you're counting like your breaths. Really... You're, you're, yeah, you're, you have exactly. to count. Right. And, you have to count, and, yeah. So it's... But here's the other why. That, that, that's the two reasons that breathing, more than two, but, but the other reason that breathing is really important is when you are ruminating about dramatic things, up goes your heart rate, up goes your blood pressure, right? And your breathing becomes more, you know, shallow and more accelerated. You're getting less, you know, oxygen. So slowing your breathing, doing, you know, um, box breathing, box breathing, the breathing or, technique that, yeah. that, that you prefer um, is a way of slowing your breathing. It is telling your brain, it's a brain hack. You're telling your brain, really? Because if it were that bad, would I be breathing this slowly? No. So it couldn't be that bad. And you're activating right. your parasympathetic you nervous back. system and your brain, right. And your brain goes, oh, I guess it's not too terrible because we're breathing really slowly. And down goes the heart rate and all of those things. So it, it's actually a really holistic response to do the breathing as long, along with these other exercises. Breathing is, a, is an amazing thing to, to, to regulate when we're dysregulated. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely something we, uh, we, we should have a feature built into the app. Um, well, it's, we measure stress. We, it's called the stress monitor. And we have uh, breathing techniques that you can use to kind of, if you recognize you're in kind of this heightened state of stress, you have the ability to deploy this, uh, it's called the physiological sigh. It's a double inhale followed by an extended exhale. And it, you know, calms the nervous system and reduces mm -hmm. anxiety and your perception of stress right. in the moment and even after the session's over. So we really anchor around breathing as, a, as an awesome strategy to kind of uh, deal with, with, uh, with you know, perceptions of, of stress and, um, yeah. Right. And, you, and let me just say something about it because that mimics a sigh, right? That, that the double yeah, inhale, exhale mimics a mm -hmm. sigh in a way. And right. sighing is, you know, people have the wrong idea about sighing. They kind of think like, well, what's that a sign of this or that? But it's actually an amazing, it's actually an amazing release. And it's actually an amazing recalibrator. The same is true of crying. 
by the way, yep. people think, oh, yeah. that's a sign of weakness. No, it's actually a great recovery mechanism because it releases a lot of stress and you kind of, you know, reset after yeah. a cry. And so some crying people have trouble crying. Crying stimulates the vagus people... nerve. Yes, it's, it's a very, very useful thing that we judge very incorrectly. I totally agree. Like when I have a good cry, I, I swear, like my next day recovery is so much higher. Like my heart rate variability is higher next day. Uh, like I always, you know, whenever I just, I, it's part of this, I think just that release and just that acknowledgement. And, you know, there's an element of, of, you know, kind of grief and letting go. And, you know, I think that comes along with crying that it's, I think is really powerful. And it's, it's interesting to see that manifest in the, in the, in the data. <laughs> Yeah, and sometimes people come to me and they'll argue with me and they'll go like, well, I never cry. And I'll be like, well, I'm so sorry and I hope one day you do have access to your feelings. <laughs> Good, that's a shake them shake up. I like it. <laughs> that's awesome. You said, you said something um, I think that's like so important. You said space to grieve. Uh, maybe talk about creating space for oneself because I feel like in today's world there are so many distractions. We have access to food. We have access to social media. We, there's just, we can, you know, watch Netflix for hours on end, you know, with shows that are really interesting to us. Like, you know, there's an element of, um, you know, and this sounds so cliche, but actually sitting with our thoughts so we can start to understand what, what is actually coming into our brain and, and whether or not those thoughts are serving us. But, you know, I think there's distraction, but there's also creating space for yourself so you can kind of sift through some of those emotions because uh, they'll surface in, in I think maladaptive ways if we're not if we don't actually deal with them so maybe just talk through like what does space actually mean in a and and we can take grief as a as a as an anchor point potentially you know thinking about it from you know romantic heartbreak or you know the loss of a loved one and, and maybe use that as right. an example so, you know, yes, I completely agree that we need the space to sit with our thoughts, but it's our thoughts and our feelings that we need to sit with. And we are remarkably, um, our emotional vocabulary tends to be very limited, um, some more than others, um, but a good we point. generally uh, are, are see, you know, when I ask people, well, how do you feel in that moment? I get primary colors, right? It's like happy, sad, angry, I don't know you know, not great, you know, like, so I tell people all the time, and I truly do use this myself, I, there's something called the emotion wheel, where you have a wheel of all the different emotions grouped by kind of category, here are the, all the angers, resentments, the this, the, da, 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 the positive ones, challenging ones, all of them. And I say to my patients, and I say to friends even, and I use it myself, I'm, in a moment I'm feeling a lot, it's difficult to unpack, and I start looking at the wheel and, and anything that registers on the radar, there could be a two here and a 10 there, but, and when you start, there could be 20 different feelings that you're experiencing in that moment. That's a lot of data. That's a lot of information to actually look at and go, okay, if I'm feeling all of these things, let me figure out what's this about and what's that about and well, why, why some relief there? Why some, you know, why some happiness there? Oh yeah, because I really don't like that person, so I didn't mind. You know, like it just, to, you know, to really kind of, you know, unpack um, uh, what's going on. That we need the space and time for. And we, it's especially true when we're grieving. It's true of every emotional injury we um, sustain, to be honest. When I said earlier that it's very obvious to for people who are active that they need time to train or they need time to warm up or they need time to cool down. This is the training when it comes to emotional health. This is the time that you devote when something big happens in your life it doesn't, you don't get over it automatically. When, when I talk about heartbreak, romantic heartbreak, for example, um, uh, I, have a, I have a TED talk about it. It has over 15 million views. And, and the reason it has so many views is because people's idea of romantic heartbreak is time. Just give it time. And A, that is useful. And B, there's so much more we could be doing to make that time shorter and to make our suffering less except that we're not aware of what those tools are and again they're involved do's and don'ts that's true of any kind of a grieving there are things we can do to process the grief and it's not uh one size fits all different people need different things there's some people who need to talk about it all the time there's some people who would rather not but there's you don't have to talk about it but you have to process it 
grief means you are getting your brain adapted and your heart adapt heart not literally but you know emotionally um adapted to a new reality of a loss and that takes time it doesn't happen on a dime you know it takes time to accommodate for you wake up in the morning oh that person isn't there or that person broke up with me or that goal of mine that i've dedicated so many years to is now gone it's a you're a different person in a way after a loss and so it takes time to sit with to adapt to to process to understand to see how it impacts the different areas of your life and to experience the feelings that it um evokes and so we sometimes don't do that naturally when it comes to heartbreak our tendency is to do all the wrong things right our tendency i know this person broke my heart i'm going to spend 16 hours of every waking moment stalking them on social media so i can see this curated version of that they put out in which they seem terribly happy and feel miserable by it you know i mean that's what people do hours i know it's not good for me i know it makes me unhappy but i just have to see what they do you don't have to you're allowing yourself to you're indulging a bad urge if you had the urge to slice your arm open hopefully you wouldn't indulge it because you would realize well that's silly and but those negative emotional psychological urges we indulge way too much a because we don't know that it's that damaging and once i explain to people how and why and the extent to which it is people go like yeah, okay maybe not um but there's one another one we become significantly when it's a romantic breakup we become intensely self-critical in our effort to understand the why which is important we feel that it's necessary to review all our faults and shortcomings and then you know oh if only i were this if only i were that if only i didn't if only i did your faults and shortcomings like if there are things you can work if if it was like oh i should never have said that to his friend and that lesson learned there maybe there's something to be taken away but i'm not tall enough i'm not rich enough i'm not big enough i'm not small enough i'm not this i'm not this those what's the point you know you can what you should be doing in that moment is entirely the opposite after a heartbreak after a romantic rejection even doesn't have to be heartbreak you should be listing all the qualities you bring to the table not highlighting what you don't your self esteem is already hurting you don't need to savage it further you want to actually revive it and that is happening that happens by really focusing on well here the things that i know i have to offer that other people have or would appreciate let me focus on those because that's going to make me more hopeful for the future as opposed to feeling like i'll never find anyone because you just reviewed everything that you think is wrong with you would you say higher self esteem well higher baseline self esteem the shorter the time to kind of get over the rejection is self esteem kind yes. of one of those self esteem is a that, buffer is a is yeah. a buffer for rejection for anxiety for certain things our self esteem fluctuates um some of it some of us are set at a regular baseline that's higher than others but there's a goldilocks zone for self esteem too high tends to get brittle then you fall into the narcissism range and that's and then you you know you might think a lot of yourself but you are also intolerant of any criticism or any negativity because internally your self esteem is it might be high but it's brittle it breaks easy so that's not good either too low then you're too self critical too unconfident you know see yourself in a really negative prism rather than a realistic one there's a happy zone in the middle but self esteem i always say it's like having a bad hair day but i used to have enough hair to have <laughs> one um it's like you wake up you can wake up feeling like crap about yourself and you can wake up feeling great and why you know maybe who has some correlations and answers that we can get to in terms of self esteem and why you know what's happening to us physiologically what happened during the night or the day before that promotes that but but in general you know like it can fluctuate and it and 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 you know we it, it and there are other programs to improve self esteem they don't work because they give you an initial boost of a day or two and when we do studies it's some people will come out of a self esteem weekend and say that they're in a much better place that their self esteem is higher but when you give them self esteem questionnaires there's no difference so so, so you know it's yeah cuz self esteem is a very specific thing and today we like to talk about self compassion instead of self esteem it's a much more useful concept and self compassion means to the what's the extent to which you have a compassionate internal voice rather than a critical one or a fawning one for that matter a compassionate one in which you just treat yourself as you would a dear friend 
in what way do we have to, you know, after a romantic heartbreak, uh, what is a healthy shift in identity? Because sometimes, you know, it, I know that your identity can be really wrapped up in that other human, you know, and, um, you know, I, I feel like that's probably not super healthy. Uh, how, to, how does one kind of think about that? Um, and they might be in a, a what is a kind of a, a, you know, a great relationship, but they, is it important for them to recognize that, oh, wow, my identity is actually really, really wrapped up in this person? And how do you kind of pull back without making that person feel rejected, even though you might not be breaking up, but you just are kind of pulling yourself out a little bit to kind of reclaim your sense of self a bit. And uh, I don't know. I also, I think about protecting in the event that it doesn't work out. And I know that might not be the right way to think about it, but what what's your take on on, on so that's that. a great, great question, right? Because the way we enter into romantic relationships is not sustainable. Um, right. We, we get infatuated. Um, our brain gets addicted, literally, <laughs> to the, uh, no, truly, to the other yeah, person. Yeah, totally. It, it, it looks like addiction. It looks right. like we become obsessed. It's like opioid, and right? Like it's like literally. It's very much like an opioid. It's the only <laughs> thing that makes us happy. Nothing else really matters, you know, and then Suddenly, we didn't hear from them for a few hours. Now we go into withdrawal. Now we're in a severe panic. And so we just want to spend every minute with them, every second with them. And maybe at the beginning, if the feeling is mutual, that's terrific. It's not sustainable. You're not going to be fused like that. You want to avoid codependency because that is a problematic. That's like a blurring of boundaries. It's an enmeshment that's not actually useful psychologically or emotionally, nor is it sustainable. Um, and so, but it's very much a, what you described is very much true of a lot of people when they enter in, they're just so smitten and it's mutual. And, and then at some point they realize, I haven't seen my best friend in like three months. I haven't done this. I stopped going to this class I loved. I stopped listening to this music because I'm with them all the time and they don't love that artist, so I'm not listening to that. It's very important to reclaim your independence. You have to communicate about it. You have to have a conversation and say, hey, look, this is amazing almost a little too much so because I haven't noticed, but I've been neglecting a lot of things that I really used to enjoy doing. I'm sure you have too. So can we talk about being able to slowly kind of re-engage in some of those other things? It might mean seeing each other a little bit less. We might need to reassure each other that we're very much still in it, but this feels good to me. I want it to work. And I know that I'm not going to be happy in the long term if I don't do this thing. And if I stop, I stop training, I stop doing this, I stop doing that. Those are not things that are going to make me happy in the long term. I got carried away and I'm glad I did because we have a great launching pad. But now we have to shift gears a little bit and make this more sustainable. Is that okay with you? Tell me how you feel about that. Yeah. In a, in a scenario where, you know, there's been a, a breakup, how do you kind of, and, and let's say, you were really codependent previously and now you're you know you've broken up and um and you're trying to reclaim that 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 identity what would be the process to kind of get back to your sense of self so number one you need to start asking yourself um what do i want to keep that i took on during that relationship maybe i was introduced to this kind of music or this kind of food or i got into this habit you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater, what is something that I would like to keep associated with my ex or no? Um, and what are the things I don't? You know, identity is a real issue because we go from being a we when we're in a relationship to an I. So there's a massive shift in personal identity from a we, like, how was your weekend? Well, we did this and this and this for the holidays. Well, we did this for the weekend. Well, we're going to see this film to I. And, and that can feel like a huge loss, you know, at the beginning and part of that loss. And so Identity reformation is something we have to do whenever life throws a curve at us that's tilted us significantly. Loss often does that. Physical injury can do that. When an athlete has to retire from the sport they love because they no longer can perform at the professional level, there's a, a loss. Gymnasts go through that at very young ages. Dancers go through, the, through that at very young ages. They devoted their entire lives. That's who they were, and now they cannot be that anymore. So who are they? There's an exploration. Identity is not something we curate from, you know, I'll take a little piece of this, a little piece of that. It's something we have to ask ourselves, discover in ourselves, wrestle with. It's a very active process of figuring out, well, what do I think? What do I believe? One example is we all raised in homes in which there was a 
position on politics, religion, all the hot button topics. And you know, we can adopt wholesale where we came from, but maybe we need to pause and go, but what do I think? And, and maybe what I think or what I believe turns out to be similar. Maybe it turns out to be different. Maybe it turns out to be different, but I want to stay with that community, so I'll adapt. Maybe it turns out to be different to the point that I really need to not hide that I feel differently. All of that is a result of exploration, asking yourself questions, being honest with yourself about the answers. Um, and, and what we have to be careful of, again, with like with the heartbreak and stalking people or with identity and just quickly coming up with an answer that's not well thought through. Um, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll do eat, pray, love. I'll just go on a trip and da da da, da and that will be the, well, you know, that's a great book and movie, but it's not something most people can, would, should do, right? And, and I, um, have a, have a, a newsletter. It's called the, the do wrong, uh, uh, the, the get wrong, do right newsletter because it, every month it goes through one thing we get very, very wrong and that we do very wrong and how to do it right. It can be things like apologies that we get very wrong because we make them about our excuses rather than about the feelings of the other person. It can be how we deal with rejection, which is to become self-critical and think it's because of us when often it's not and there's no point in becoming self-critical. Somebody already did that for you. You know, like there's so, so and it's important people to understand the mistakes so that they don't amplify um, negativity or they don't make wounds emotional or otherwise bigger when it comes to identity part of our mistakes is that we don't think of it as an active question of who am i when you ask people and if you know some anyone who's listening wants to ask a friend who are you they'll get demographics this age this this i do this what's on your driver's license kind of thing that's part of who you are but who you are is what you believe is what you feel. You might, unbeknownst to a lot of people, spend four hours a day drawing comics that no one knows about. But if you're spending four hours a day on art, you're an artist. In part, that's part of who you are. And, and you know, I, for example, can cook a meal for people and if they literally expel it back onto the plate, my feelings will not be hurt because the cook is not a part of my identity. It's not something I do well, think I do well, that's important for me to do well. So, you know, if I get criticism there, it, it bothers me less. If somebody will come and say, you don't understand anything about what's going on with me, I'll find that more upsetting because as a psychologist, I would hope I would. Um, and so, you know, it's so the different aspects to our identity, to our self-esteem, and those different aspects have different meanings and they're complex. There are overall sense of identity, and our identity, how do I feel as a partner? How do I feel as a son? How do I feel as a brother? You know, and good brother, bad brother, good friend, bad, like what are my qualities? What do I bring to the table? All of this is an exploration. So you start by asking a lot of questions and seeing what resonates with you emotionally, what, what comes up, what you feel. And it's a process. And the process of identity formation is a lifelong process because we go through changes and losses Evolve. and adaptations all the time. We're not the same person. Yeah, and it, it seems like that kind of part of retaining the sense of self that is so important, the more we kind of have a, a clear definition of, of who we want to be in the world, it seems as though we're, that would be a real buffer to a lot of the vulnerable, you know, being, that would make us a little less vulnerable, um, I would think. And, 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 a, and I think a big piece of this too is, is environment, you know, kind of creating an environment where we can reinforce that identity, you know, and, and an outlet for the things that enable us to kind of almost practice that identity. Um, maybe if you want to talk a little bit about that, because I think, you know, oftentimes that's where we kind of go wrong with emotional health and that, you know, our environment, our friend group are, you know, aren't in line with the things that we say we really care about and that we value. And as a result, we get this mismatch in terms of our behaviors and what we say we care about and, and the person that I want to be in this world. So maybe talk a little bit about emotional health and, and just environment and boundaries. Okay. So, so um, emotional health, uh, it, you know, in, when it comes to identity, um, it's you, if you're an athlete, say, and you don't have a social circle of athletes, you don't get to express, you can tell them this or that statement, but you're not really discussing, you're not, you don't feel a part of a community of athletes. 
And that's really damaging to your sense of identity. It's almost like you have to bury a part of yourself that's super important. And so we get validation and we get to explore identities when we have a group affiliation of people who feel the same about themselves who we have that in common with. And there's huge power to that group affiliation because the research is, for example, that when people encounter bias, if they're really affiliated with the group of people towards whom that bias went, they are much more buffered because they're almost like sharing the insult with the group rather than sustaining it individually or being picked out individually. It feels very different to face bias when you feel like you're standing alone versus when you feel like, no, there are people behind me who feel the same, know the same, experience the same, and would understand completely if I told them what just what just happened. So that group affiliation part is is super important for our identity. It's where we really can can strengthen and can experience that those aspects of ourselves. And again, it's not writ large. We're not one thing. We're many things. So that group affiliation, let's say you're a black person and you experience bias, being with black people, you know, because you can't be black and not experience bias, so they will get it, hopefully. You know, and 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 that is is very, very um, um, strong, you know, in that in that way. And you asked about um, boundaries. It's the subject of the most recent uh, newsletter. What we get wrong about boundaries is when we, you know, and I'm talking about the boundaries we try to set with other people to let them know when they're stepping on our toes. Um, that's my analogy of it. Like somebody stepped on your toes. They didn't realize, oh, didn't realize you had a toe there. Um, I do. So you just stepped on it. And when you set boundaries with someone and you say, hey, so this is where you don't step because that's where my toes are. That's where I'm, I have a sensitivity or that's where you do something that I don't find comfortable or, or, or pleasant. What people get wrong about that is they think it's a one-step process. It's hard enough to have the talk with someone about boundaries. Now, look, this happened. Da, 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 da. And when they're done, everyone's like, I got through it or there was a fight or whatever it was. Boundaries is a two-step process. The small, small step is the first one in which you set the boundary. The big step is everything that happens thereafter in which you maintain the boundary. Boundaries always have to be maintained. We don't live in a magical society where your requests gets internalized and adhered to immediately by all around you. That would be nice. Not the case. Even people who care about you will get it wrong a lot. So as long as you know that and you know that you need to maintain the boundary, remind people, do it as nicely as possible, as non-confrontationally as possible. If you don't, you're giving them the message that, you know that thing that I said, it really upsets me when you do? Sometimes it's fine, is the message you're giving when you don't maintain the boundary, which is confusing to the other person, so they'll do it. So, so even in boundaries, it's important to be actively uh, maintaining them. And again, I get back to the message about emotional health, which is it is an active daily process of self-examination and getting the information because it starts with the fact that this information is not out there people don't know it so they don't know what how to do and when but once even once you have that information that's where the work begins it's like you can get all the equipment but then the training begins and you got to show up in the gym it won't happen magically right and it's so it's crazy because you think about i mean i think about myself like how much i think i program my workouts and like think about my when i'm going to do cardiovascularly and strength perspective, one of the recovery modalities I'm going to engage in, which has a correlation, you know, a, a relationship to, to emotional and mental health for sure. Um, but in terms of like really carving out like actual real time to think about my emotional health, you're dead on. No one does it. I mean, 0.0001% of the population is engaging in some sort of like, like real time that is set aside each day. And I, you know, Meditation, mindfulness, I think these are all paths potentially, but what would what would that time frame like really look like if we're thinking about like building this muscle, uh, this skill of emotional health? Like what what do, what does that time frame need to look like for us? So, okay, let's distinguish between um, injury recovery and uh, maintenance and training. Okay. So the injury recovery is uh, recovery is I got uh, rejected, I sustained a loss, I had a <laughs> failure, I had a, you know, like something that really... So like emotional um, you know, injury just where you're just... Tilts you off. Yeah. Emotional injury, it tilts you off the <laughs> track, it tilts you off your center and you just want to soldier on and keep going. 
Um, there are really specific tools and techniques. My book, Emotional First Aid, is was that. Like here's a tool Perfect, to yeah. use for daily life. Small stuff, small stuff. But you can treat those injuries. I, I, you know, I sustain failures as much as everyone else. But every time I do, I am on, in the spot. My 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 best example of this was like I was about to give a really important talk, and three weeks before the talk, I had a rehearsal, and it got torn apart torn apart while I'm on stage rehearsing, you know, in the room was like, this is that bad. And, and I was like, we're ready to go. It's three weeks away. And wow. um, what went through my head is you wrote so many articles and chapters about failure. Do it, do what you need to do. <laughs> so it's like, I was, <laughs> don't, don't be frozen, you know, do. Yeah, and I immediately, I, it, it, it bounced me out of it. And I immediately started like remembering, okay, Here's what I would have suggested for someone to do in that moment. Do that. And I certainly, and to, to get the emotions, you know, to get this not dysregulated, I immediately became intensely curious about what was the direction they thought I should be going and what did they, what is it they think the right thing would be? Listen really carefully. If they think this is bad, they're not just saying this is bad. They have an idea. So listen, be there and work with them and collaborate with them now as you're on stage and sweating bullets. Do it now. And I have that on video, in fact. And I went to look at it, you know, like a week or two later um, after I had rewritten the thing and it was approved and, 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 and nicely. So, and I was, and I was like so proud of myself for being able to implement my own advice in a difficult moment. <laughs> and the point oh gosh, of that that's... is it's difficult. It's really emotionally uncomfortable, but that's the training. That's the idea that you're sustaining a wound, triage it now. Don't let it fester. Don't let it get infected. You know, be on it. And so, so A, treating injuries, you know, is one thing. And the other is the building up, is working on your identity, working on gratitude. I think mindfulness and meditation, especially mindfulness meditation, are amazing. There's so much research about that. I'm not, you know, again, it's all evidence-based stuff that I tend to go for here. And, and, and those are wonderful things. I'm not great at meditation. I practice it intermittently. I'm not very good at it because I haven't Same. spent enough time training the mm -hmm. muscle sure. to be able to sit and do it for sustained. And by sustained, I mean, 10 minutes, I'm not good. You know, like, you know, it's like I open my eyes and I go, well, that must have been an hour. Oh, look, three minutes. Um, you know, it's like that. But it's like, there's a lot of muscles you can train. That's not the one I right. focus on. But but I should, and I know that, and it's, in the, it's on the list of things. Um, but there's so much you can do to train emotionally, psychologically, to beef up yourself, to, to learn things, to reframe difficult things so that they're more optimistic when you feel discouraged, to you know, restore your motivation, when you feel rejected, to restore your self-esteem, when you feel helpless, to restore a sense of control, when you feel anxious, to restore a sense of certainty. I can go on and on and on and on and on. There are active things we can be doing every day to beef ourselves up and especially to address the impediments that we should be doing in a natural way like we do when it comes to our physiological and physical health, but we, but we know less about the emotion and the psychological health, so we don't do as much. But, but that's where the training is. Do you feel like the world is becoming more aware and more conscious of just some of these tools that exist and at least, you know, we're not there yet uh, in terms of practicing these skills? Uh, regularly, but do you feel like the conversation is at, at a better place, you know, globally around so mental? I think the pandemic, health? yes, and I think the pandemic did a lot there. I I'm a psychologist who writes books, has TED talks, gives talks. That's you know, but I'm not you know the head of this department at this university. And um, a year and a half ago, and this is this is um, slight humble brag, but I you'll indulge me for a minute. Um, I I got invited to. 10 Downing Street in England to speak to the British government. And they said, we want to hear what your recommendations are for mental health policies we should institute across the UK. And I literally said to them, that's amazing. Why on earth are you asking me? And their response was, because you'll be talking to policymakers and bureaucrats and those kinds of people. And we need somebody who can talk to people in way, you know, and not talk at people people and you're good at communicating it's not an academic lecture this is science. a conversation correct <laughs> we've had those it bores them they don't do anything and so i went and talking to them about work stress and about because one thing i knew all of them maybe they're depressed maybe they're anxious all of them are stressed 
the nature of the beast when it comes to being a civil servant in any government. Um, and so I talk about work stress and what they need to, how they need to think differently about work stress and the idea that the interesting thing about work stress is that we don't experience it at work. We're too busy. We experience it outside of work in the form of worry, anxiety, rumination, all of those things. And because that's the case, we have much more control over it than we actually think. And so I just went in with a whole, you know, and I gave those talks to a lot of different companies because that, that idea of how you manage yourself and your own stress is super important. And that really spoke to them. And they even instituted a law uh, uh, based on, on the talk at some, at, at some point. And, and so the, the idea, that, again, I apologize for the humble brag, but the point I wanted to make is no, I beautiful. don't think that would have happened pre-pandemic. I think the pandemic made the point with everyone, like everyone who thought I'm immune, I don't need this, I don't get depressed, I don't get lonely. Well, the whole world shut down and we don't know if the fabric of civil society is going to hold. Let's see how you feel right now. So yeah. I think after the pandemic, you know, people were much more open to the idea. Unfortunately, this is a window that will close very soon because as humans, we like to not think about, you know, uh, those kinds of things and just assume that we're all robust and immune. And so that awareness in, in, you know, in the shadow of a huge worldwide global event uh, is not going to last once life comes back to normal and is already almost there. And so there is a window of opportunity for people to get informed and to take on board half the equation that they've been missing. I love that. I mean, there's no question. Our thesis at WHOOP is, is very much around, you know, it's not what's happening in your craft. Like during those eight hours that you're you know, uh, in the emergency, uh, you know, your acute care surgeon, like, you know, dealing with a huge trauma that, that just happened or, you know, a military operator, professional athlete, like your craft, that's kind of the easy part. It is the, the other, you know, kind of 13, 14, 15 hours of the day that that's what you need to manage. And, and I think that's, that's where, um, the opportunity is really, you know, to, and, and I love that you had this opportunity to kind of talk to folks about that concept and, and, you know, when you, when you talked about kind of work stress um, and, and the stress that's happening outside of work and how to manage it, um, did you kind of talk about it from like a, a physiological and psychological lens in terms of like how you actively manage stress and, and just, yes, you know, components yes, yes, yes. I mean, first and, of all, yeah. <clears throat> uh, you know, um, when you're ruminating about work in the off hours, you are going to have sleep disturbances. That's what the research shows. You're yeah. going to eat unhealthier foods because you're trying to soothe. You're going to be more, at, if you're chronic, you're going to be more at risk for cardiovascular disease because you're flooding your system with cortisol and other unhealthy you know, hormones and, and, and mental states um, over big hours of time and unnecessarily so. So you're literally you know, predisposed. I also spoke about loneliness, for example. People think loneliness is unpleasant. Yes, it's unpleasant. It will also kill you. Loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It impairs longevity. It will make you infirmed and sick compared to somebody who's not lonely, and it will kill you early. The chances of an early death rise by 30-something percent with chronic loneliness. These are huge physical and longevity manifestations. There's research even about smiling and mental attitude that you look at the smiles of kindergarten kids in these very long-term studies and you count the crow's feet around their eyes and those kids on average live longer than the ones with fewer crow's feet just in terms of wow. the smile and their approach to the world because when kids smile with crow's feet, that's an authentic smile. When they just put up the thing, it's not. So you can see the kids who are able at that point to really connect to a happy moment. And that's hugely impactful to how long we live and the health we have. So yes, the, the mind-body connection is, is huge. We're at, uh, you know, we're, we're at the initial stages of, the, of that mountain of you know, excavating exactly all the ways in which it operates. I'm excited for the years to come because I think we'll discover so much more. And that doing that will give us all kinds of pathways, not just to emotional and psychological, but to physical health and performance in athletics and other and every other domain because it impairs thinking, cognitive thinking, you know, for example. Um, so so I'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll learn more and more about those things. And I'm very hopeful that 
private citizens with Whoop, with other, you know, you know, devices and with a sophistication that that is just starting and will come, will become much more informed about their own mental processes, physiological processes, the connection between the two, and be able to have much more control over this aspect of their lives that we literally didn't have any control over a short yeah. while ago. Not so beautifully said. I love that. Um, maybe, you know, we're getting toward the end here, but I'd love to ask you just, you know, some folks are still working from home, um, you know, are kind of remote working. Uh, maybe, you know, what have you learned over the course of the last few years with just now this very new model of, of work? Um, what have been some of the benefits of, of working from home? And yeah, what's your just kind of overall take on on what goes mm. right, what goes wrong, you know, in terms of emotional health? Yeah. Look, the, the, the science is that, uh, and this was pre-pandemic, we are as productive, if not more, at at home um, as we are in the office. The downsides, uh, the many pros and cons, but just to be very you know brief about it, the, the downsides are that that lack of FaceTime um, can be a disadvantage if somebody's able to be in the office and somebody not, then they have more access, they might have certain advantages, more FaceTime with the boss, and that can be an advantage for them. What People started doing at some point, and I, I gave a ton of talks at the beginning of the pandemic to so many different companies um, saying like, you have to add elements to meetings which are connective, emotionally connective between people, because otherwise people are going to feel hugely disconnected and that's going to impact the employee loyalty, their engagement, their productivity, their happiness, your attrition rates are going to grow. Um, and so people need to feel connected. They don't have a break room to meet in, coincidentally. I said, like, for example, you go to a meeting, you leave your cubicle, you say hello to this one over there, you rub the shoulder of that one over there, you go to the to the break room, you get coffee, you chat for a few minutes, you get there early, you oh, how's your kid doing? Da, da, da. Yeah, None so of that existed when when the, the, the group meetings began virtually. Um, and And yeah, you have to, you know, you, you have to introduce it artificially. You have to bring in, and again, that's a leadership thing. The leaders have to start by saying, let's do a round and check in with everyone about how we're doing. I'll start. I'll say something vulnerable. You don't announce that, you just do it. But I'll say something slightly emotionally vulnerable to, you know, demonstrate to you that it's okay that we're here to support one another, that we're a team, we're working together, we spend more hours together than we do with our families. Let's care for one another more companies you know, who, who have a, a, a central tenant of, of caring, and they're not many, um, um, do much better in terms of, you know, the, the, you know, what they get out of their employees because people want to be cared for when they're devoting so many hours of their life to something. And so that, you know, how we manage the hybrid models or the work-from-home models entirely, it is on us to um, truly uh, 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 make up for the lack of, connectivity, touch can be important. Like some people don't, are not touching anyone, literally, even if it's a rub on the shoulder, that's an important thing. And of course, these days you want to be careful about rubbing someone's shoulder without consent, but you know, like friends, et cetera, like we, we need that. And, and so it's, it's, it's a really important thing. And I would ask anyone to pay attention if you're working remotely entirely or in a hybrid model, track yourself. If you're getting data from your whoop, get data from your brain by adding to whatever the spreadsheet is, um, you know, things like, um, and how did I, who did I speak to today and who did I feel connected to and all mm -hmm. of that. I love that. What would you say? So if, if you were to kind of give us um, kind of your, your top three or five uh, things to kind of manage your emotional hygiene, what would that laundry list look like for you? Ask yourself, how am I doing? How am I feeling? And what do those feelings tell me? What information can I gather from them? And when I ask people, how are you, how are you feeling? Or when I say, ask yourself, at least 10 feelings have to be there. And you don't have to feel all of them intensely. But, but you know, understand the complexity of your feelings. Understand why you have them. Ask yourself what you want to do with those feelings. Which ones are useful to you? Which are not? Get informed. Because there's, you know, it starts with basic information. You know that, you know, you need to, you know, for example, nutrition-wise, people know so much about what they should or should not be eating. They do not know what they should be taking in 
psychologically or emotionally, what's nutritious, what isn't. Again, people ruminate without understanding that it's not just not nutritious, it's toxic. Certain times of certain kinds of self-reflection, like problem solving or you know, uh, perspective taking or reframing are actually very nutritious. So A, get informed and, and then start practices and then track, um, again, experimental method, track how you do on those practices. And so you have data that tells you this works for you, this doesn't. You know, for example, there, there, there are many pain relievers on the market, you know, you know on uh, over-the-counter pain relievers. Um, when I have a headache, there's one of them that works for me, the others don't. I only know that by trial and error because there's no magic to it. So this is trial and error. What tends to work for you? You're having a really low day. Who's the friend that really lifts your spirits versus the friend that you're busy, but it didn't really do anything for you? Who made you feel connected? Who made you feel heard? Who, you know, again, it might not be obvious to you. Your best friend might not be the best listener. And if they're the best listener, they might not be the best person to express the validation that you need. They might listen to you go on for 15 minutes about how your heart is broken and go, dude, bummer. Mm, not so useful. We need a little more than that. So, like, so ask yourself, like, be intentional and purposeful in how you curate the people around you, the life you want, the practices you have. See what works for you. Make notes of it, and and just take it seriously. I love it. So good. <laughs> uh, dang, this is so fun. Uh, I just. We appreciate your time uh, so much. You've been just wildly insightful, and I think our members are just going to absolutely love this conversation. So uh, just thank you for your time today. Um, where's the best place for folks to to find you? I know, obviously, we'll link to your books and your your TED Talks and um, and if you have a website, but um, are you on yes, Instagram, so... LinkedIn? Yeah. I'm I'm on I'm on everything. Um TikTok we're starting soon, not yet, but but we're starting very soon. Um but uh just guywinch.com, G-U-I-W-I-N-C-H.com. Um we'll have links to everything I do. The things I would Perfect. highlight, you'll have links to three TED Talks there, you'll have links to three books. They're in thirty languages. So if you speak a different language, you probably will find them in your language, even Mongolian most recently. So wow. you know, hello to everyone in Mongolia. And um <laughs> Um, I also have a, a podcast called Dear Therapists, um, in which I co-host, which in which we do live therapy sessions. So you'll be able to hear live Amazing. therapy sessions and in which we give the person advice at the end of the of the session. They go and do it and they come back and report what happened. So you wow. really get a complete arc of someone's uh, story. And it also gives you a sense and, and it'll it'll make you think because the questions mm -hmm. we ask, you know, our guest are the questions that you can ask yourself as well in many of these situations articles all those things so so you will find a link to the to the newsletter to, to subscribe really that's the the portal that you can go through and you should be able to find everything there amazing amazing well thank you again big thank you to dr guy winch for coming on the whoop podcast emotional health and relationships are critical if you enjoyed this episode of the whoop podcast please leave us a rating or review don't forget to subscribe to the whoop podcast you can check us out on social at whoop at Will Ahmed. If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us, podcast at whoop.com. Call us, 508-443-4952, and we'll answer your question on a future episode. New members can use the code WILL, W-I-L-L, -L, get a $60 credit on Whoop Accessories. And that's a wrap this week. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next week on the Whoop Podcast. As always, stay healthy and stay in the green.